right, let's take a look at uh, Acts 26. Coming to a rapid close of our long study of Acts. It's been over a year. Uh, it gets uh, quick in the last few, uh, few pages, few chapters, because it's all narrative. You know, I hope you see that when you, in narrative, when you, when I teach narrative, when anybody teaches narrative, I think, should be anyway, is that it goes fast. It's narrative. You can't teach these long narratives like you teach Romans or James, uh, verse by verse in the sense, I know we're reading each verse, but uh, you can't parse every word and, 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 and in such a narrative. You've got to get the whole story here. So uh, um, I hope you don't think that uh, Lance is just getting bored and trying to rush through it. No, I just want to stay with the whole story and uh, keep it all together. <coughs> Uh, all at once, because that's what it's for. Last week in chapter 25, we met uh, King Agrippa II, who is uh, the king, uh, king in Israel, but he's still subservient to Rome. Here's just a quick overview of, of Herod Agrippa II. He's the last of the Herod dynasty, uh, the last one to meddle with Christ and his followers. Uh, his great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He's the one that murdered all the children under the age of two in Bethlehem, trying to get rid of the Christ that he had heard was in town. His uh, Agrippa II's granduncle was Herod Antipas, and he murdered John the Baptist. It's a great family, you can see. Uh, his father, Herod Agrippa I, executed James, who was the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. He imprisoned Peter, intended to kill Peter, and he was later eaten by worms for receiving worship without giving glory to God. We saw that in Acts chapter 12. Uh, he was rumored to have incestuous relations with his sister, Bernice, who is with him in these contexts. Uh, it's not just, it was actually all over the Roman Empire. Uh, one of the authors of the day wrote about it, wrote a poem about it. Uh, it's never proven, but uh, mostly believed to, be, uh, to have been true. And so at the end of it, I say, yes, yeah, sometimes Christians have to defend themselves before fools, foolish people, people that we... We think maybe we shouldn't have to defend ourselves in front of. These are God-haters. These are immoral people, and yet here we are as Christians answering before them. That's exactly what, what Paul is doing. Uh, if you'll recall, in Acts chapter 9, at Paul's conversion, uh, God told Ananias, guy's coming to you, you're going to baptize him. And Ananias knew about, Jesus, about uh, Paul. He said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And I put that there to remind you is that, that this is part of Paul's destiny to speak before kings, to speak before Gentiles and suffer. And as I come into this text, I, I look at it over the course of the week and I see we have the opportunity in reading this this chapter to see a real Christian, I mean, a genuine man of God in a world there. Sometimes we wonder, you know, we know real Christians. You're probably a real Christian. I think I'm a real Christian. I think. But when I compare myself to this guy, I wonder, you know, I, I'm pretty, pretty cheap. Um, here it's my task in my cushy office in my cushy church with the air conditioner on, we got new chairs, we got new carpet. Um, isn't this nice? We're going to talk about Christianity from the standpoint of a man who, who lived in jail for it. He has got to be one of God's top five emissaries of all time ever. We're going to sit back and talk about how great he is while sitting in a lap of luxury. I don't know, I just, I, I, I feel... Uh, 
as I should, I feel absolutely um, unworthy to talk about such a man. And yet it is my job to do so. Uh, and, that, and that's not even to speak of Jesus. We're just talking about another man made of flesh and blood. But he really brings home what it means to be a true believer. Here's what God said he would do. He hated Christ. God brought him to Christ by his own appointment. He's going to go before Gentiles and kings and he's going to preach and he's going to go to jail. And God says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. He doesn't say, I'm going to show him how blessed he's going to be. Isn't that interesting? But how much he must suffer. Doesn't that scare you to think? Did God say that to one of the angels in heaven when he said, I'm going to bring this guy to Christ, this lady to Christ, and I'm going to show them how much they must suffer. So we see that uh, at the end of chapter 25 is where uh, Agrippa comes together, beginning in verse 32, of 23, I say, 25, 23. Uh, Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp. Uh, the, the Greek word there is phantasia. Uh, it's just uh, this huge... I want you to picture this amazing display of Roman power and authority coming in and showing the whole world who's in charge. By the way, uh, Portius Festus is under the, the authority of King Agrippa. King Agrippa is greatly powerful here. And all this pomp and all of these uh, amazing, this, this amazing display of power from Rome. And then there's little Paul standing there, the great worldly Look, and then the great man of God standing before them. Chapter 26, Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Now, my guess is a pretty good guess, I would think, is that Luke is there to witness all of this. And as with all of Paul's speeches and everything he says, everything in Acts, there's no doubt, is very much summarized. This is not a full sermon. These are not word-for-word dictation of what Paul said. I think that's pretty clear, but Luke is there to to take such details like, then Paul stretched out his hand, which was a great way that Greek orators did. You're permitted to speak. He stuck out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. That word for defense in the Greek text is apologia. It's from where we get the the, the field of study called apologetics, where we're defending um, the faith of Jesus Christ. Paul's going to make a defense for his own sake, for his own neck, quite literally. In regard to the things of which I am accused by the Jews, Paul says, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Apparently he was. Paul's not one to give flattery. He knows that King Agrippa is an expert of the customs of the Jews. He is a Jew. Um, He also knows his own father and grandfather and great uncle's problems and what they've done in the past. But he is saying, I feel fortunate. All the other accusations have all fallen by the wayside. The only thing Paul's on on trial here is for questions that the Jews have raised about him. He says, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Verse 4. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. Here's where he's telling his testimony. By the way, listed for the third time in the the, book of Acts. Paul gave his testimony. His testimony is given in Acts chapter 9. It's given in Acts chapter 22. Here it's given in Acts chapter 26. The third time, they're not all uh, verbatim the same. They're a little bit different, but there's no contradictions. And so Paul's going to tell King Agrippa who he was. All Jews know my manner of life up from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. Remember, Pharisees are distinct from Sadducees. 
Pharisees are the very conservative group. They believe the law, the writings, and the prophets. That would be our entire Old Testament. That's what a Pharisee believed. Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the, of the Bible, um, called the Torah. Actually, Torah is how you say the Hebrew word. It's Torah. means law. When you hear the word Pentateuch, that's just a Greek word for the same thing. It means five. Penta. Duke, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. So it's the same thing. You don't have to go, which one's which? Torah is Hebrew, Pentateuch is Greek. It's talking about the first five books or the law of God. And so Paul is saying, I was a Pharisee. Everyone here knows I was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees are part of the strictest sect of our religion, of Judaism. He says in verse 6, Now I'm standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our 12 tribes, it's interesting, 12 tribes, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the 12 tribes of Israel, when they were dispersed and they, they took over the land of Israel, that they was, after they came in, Moses died, Joshua brought them in, they all took various areas, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they later split. You have Saul, David, and Solomon, the first three kings over 120 years, called the United Monarchy, a kingdom that was united, and then it divided after Solomon. Solomon's son divided it. So it was divided in the north, called Israel, and the south, called Judah. Ten tribes in the north, and in the south you had Judah and Benjamin. Well, the, the north, northern ten tribes all were integrated into the, the pagan Gentile world. They, were called, they ended up being called what? Samaritans. And so they became what's, what many have called the ten lost tribes of Israel. And so the only ones that were known were the Jews in the south, coming from the tribe Judah, the Jews. Well, later on, you, you meet, we meet a woman in the New Testament. Her name was Anna. She was of the tribe of what? Asher. Asher, that's one of those ten in the north. So you read elsewhere in the Old Testament that of those ten tribes, many of the, the what we would say the orthodox ones, matriculated down into the south. And so all twelve tribes are um, preserved or were preserved. In fact, when you read the book of Revelation, God seals 12,000 from each of those tribes. No one knows today who's from what tribe, but who does know? It's the answer you give in every church service when you're asked. God. He knows. And Paul speaks of these 12 tribes, of those, the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people, are holding on to the hope of the promise that God made to our fathers. Verse 7, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I'm being accused by the Jews. What's the hope? The hope is, is not something we wish for. By the way, you can wish for something. I really wish one day that I win the lottery. That, that would be great. But if God wrote in the Bible that Lance Waldy will win the lottery, then my hope would be I'm going to win the lottery. It would be my, God's word said it. I know it's going to happen. It's hope. It's a silly example, I know. Our hope is not that Jesus might come back, maybe, hopefully, it's that Jesus said he would come back. So it's our confidence in that event. We wish for certain things, but our hope is something that God promised. We're counting on God following through with his promise. And Paul is saying here, that's just who I am. I'm part of Israel, part of the 12 tribes, part of the conservative group of Pharisees. I am hoping and looking forward to this great promise that God promised us. And that's going to center around dying and being resurrected. And so he says, and for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. I put exclamation points right there on the side of my, in the, in the margin there, because that's the last line, last word in the sentence there. He, he's essentially saying, I'm hoping. 
It's, it's be one thing to be accused by pagan peoples of believing in this. But he said, I'm being accused by my own people of the promises God gave to these people. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? Why would it be considered? And Paul is no doubt looking not at Agrippa here, but looking at the Jews gathered. He's looking, after he said this, probably if he's staring at Agrippa from here, and then he says this statement, he's probably looking around at the crowd of Jews going, why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? Why would that be incredible? I'm going to move through that. Here's what the old prophet, just three passages that the Old Testament prophets preach. Number one, Isaiah 26, 19. <clears throat> Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the earth, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Can it say it anymore clearly? That's called resurrection. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Hosea 13, 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? That is the grave. Excuse me. Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Which is this. Paul uses this, as you know, in 1 Corinthians 15 to kind of taunt death. We're going to be resurrected from the dead. So Paul is saying, look, looking at the Jews going, you know what the scriptures teach. In synagogue every week, Part of the prophets are taught there is a resurrection. So they've got him on trial because he believes in the resurrection. Verse 9, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons. Again, this is Paul talking about what he did. So we'll note here he locked up many of the saints, that's Christians, in prisons having received authority from the chief priests, that means the chief priests in Israel of Judea were giving authority to arrest these people. But when they were being put to death, that means early Christians were being put to death at the hands of Jews, Paul says, I cast my vote against them. Now, either he was casting his vote against them as a member of the council, or he was just approving what they were doing. Kill them. We know that he did this with, with Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Verse 11, as in I, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being, note this, furiously enraged at them. Can you see him up in their faces? Taunting, yelling, screaming, spitting at them, slapping them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities, forcing them to blaspheme. Say it. You can just see Paul, Saul of Tarsus before his conversion, screaming at some person. Deny that Jesus is the Christ. You fool, you idiot, slapping him around. That's who he once was. And Paul no doubt remembers this about himself. That's what I once was. Keeps him from thinking too highly of himself. Furiously enraged. That's who he says I was. Verse 12. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus. We get this in Acts 9. With the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. Brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me and those who were journeying with me. Verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Because that's what Paul was going to do. 
Why are you persecuting me? And we know it's Jesus speaking because he later says it is. You're persecuting me. So remember that when someone picks on you, persecutes you as a Christian for being a Christian, not for pulling out in front of him in the parking lot, you made him mad, but when you are, as a Christian, causing people angst, anger, frustration, hatred, they're taking whatever they take out on you is actually persecution of Jesus. Jesus notices that. Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you're a rancher, you know what a goad is. It's apparently it's a long stick with a, a, a sharp end. And if you want to get your cattle to move along, you poke them with it. And they feel the, the poke of it. Hey, guess I better go. Someone pro- pokes me with, a, with one of these goads. I'm, okay, you don't have to. You don't have to yell. But it's actually, it was actually a, a saying, an axiom that people talked about in the Greek culture about when the gods say something to a human being. Um, watch out if you don't listen. And so Paul kind of combines these two things, which I thought was very interesting. I never knew that before this week. I'd always seen that. I just always said God's talking about, hey, don't kick against the goads. He didn't speak about kicking against the goads in the past in his other testimonies. He may just add this for colorful sake, but he's saying, Agrippa, you know what it's like when the gods speak. Humans better act. And when God spoke, he's essentially saying, it's pointless to fight against me, Paul. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. Remember, he had fallen down at the bright light. Stand up on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you. Here's God's way of appointing. Are we not all appointed as Christians to go out and preach the gospel? We are. We are. We call it the the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you always, teaching them to observe all, uh, all that I've commanded. You're right. Great Commission. All are called to that. Not all are called to be apostles like Paul was. Not all are even called to be preachers like I am. Um, And so we as preachers, we call this a calling. You've heard that said before. We were called. You know, the Baptist church used to always make a big deal. We're calling someone in view of a calling. We're going to call this person in view of a calling. What? Yeah, we're going to see if he wants the job. (laughs) Always got to say in view of a calling. Well, and then there's others that will say there's nothing in the Bible that says we're called. We're just normal people doing a normal job. No, there's nothing normal about this job. <laughs> nothing. Um, and so, but we don't ever want to put a pastor, a pastor doesn't want to do it for himself, and nor do you want to say, oh, he's called. Because what follows normally is he's anointed. Or he's got, as some preachers like to tell their congregations, double anointing. Doubly anointed because he's not just a, a Christian, he's a preacher. Whoo, he's super spiritual. He's a, he's a powerful Christian. No, no, that's not at all. But there is a calling and appointing of it. Paul was a man just like you and me, but he was appointed. And you'll see here, this is what Jesus is telling him. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness. That word minister, the Greek word behind it is simply servant. Sometimes it's the Greek word diakonos, where we get deacon. I'm appointing you to be a king over my people, to tell everybody what to do. No, to be a servant. And a witness, that Greek word for witness is martyr. To be a deacon and a martyr. Not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. I've appointed you, Paul. You are special in this regard. And Paul was. I've taken you out and appointed you. This is what God does. Which I find fantastic. It's not like Paul grew up. 
this wonderful Christian, mommy and daddy, told him about Jesus at a young age and, and that the Messiah was there and go, you'll find him in, uh, in Jerusalem and, and you'll follow him and, and then you'll be graduating to this great position of authority. Paul hated Christ. Hated everything about what Jesus of Nazareth represented. And yet God transformed him from a man of hatred to a converted man of Christ and pointed him in the other direction. And that's just that quick. He didn't ask him, would you like to, uh, to change directions, Saul? I got a proposition for you, Saul. You can continue to wear that long robe and receive all the, the accolades that go with being a Pharisee in Jerusalem. Or you can sacrifice it all, and I'll show you how much I'm going to uh, cause you to suffer. And you're going to go before kings, and you're going to live in jail. Essentially, your, your home's going to be a jail cell. He doesn't do that. When God appoints, we call this irresistible grace. You ever hear that phrase? God's irresistible grace. God doesn't get us and say, okay, here's, here's the deal. Let me see which one you want. Okay. You, 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 uh, you denied the deal. No, God appoints when God calls God transforms, and he did with Paul. He did with you. Appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people. Actually, the Greek text just says the people. And from the Gentiles. So because it says and from the Gentiles, we think he's talking about Jews. To whom I'm sending you. I'm sending you to the Jews and the Gentiles, and I'll rescue you from them. Ultimately, however, the Gentiles took Paul's head off of his body. So God's promise here is not that you're going to have this forever, perpetually. It's just that you've got a mission to do. I'm appointing you to do it. Eventually, you'll be killed. But I'm going to rescue you along the way, as he did. And he's going to do it, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Well, that's beautiful is it not we do that too we have the privilege by to share the gospel and what does it do our gospel is spoken and we wait for god to open the eyes of people open their eyes why once their eyes are open they turn from darkness to light i am um, i met a gentleman earlier this year late last year michael lewis and michael lewis is a, is a filmmaker in dallas texas and he was putting he's making a movie called the universe designed and he is interviewing uh, apologists. And he interviewed me, came to the church, put up all the cameras and everything, spent half the day with him. Anyway, Michael is, a, is an, an old atheist. He's a young man, I'd say, but he's a former atheist. And uh, when you listen to his testimony, he's got a podcast, and the guy was asking him, what was your life like? He said, well, when I was an atheist, he said, I never really thought about my life. He said, I certainly didn't think I was going to die anytime soon. He said, but I really, my worldview was just that when I died, I'd rot in the ground. He said, but I never thought about that anyway. He said, I would have told you at any point, there's no way I'm dying tomorrow. That's not going to happen. That's for later on. He said, but I never gave it any thought. He said, I lived in darkness without knowing it. When, when the events transpired and they came together that brought him to Christ, he said, the lights came on to the extent where he was just so transformed. He said, and now I can't believe how, how anyone can live like I once lived. Uh, his testimony is so beautiful of an atheist coming to know Christ. His wife converted first, a lot like Lee Strobel's testimony. And he came to know, but it was this out of darkness into light. God finally turned it on. And it was he, the, the final, the final um, piece of the puzzle, I should say, was there was a guy from the church. He went and sat down with him, and he had all these questions. 
All these questions. So we went to this guy in the church. He spent most of the day with him, and the guy answered all of his questions. And that's what the movie's about. The movie, when he, when he said, I'll interview you, he sent me all those questions. And I'm going, gee, Willikers, that's, that's two years of my four-year seminary degree right there. He's gonna, I'm going to have to go through this. And when he interviewed me, I was going through all of these, from the manuscripts to the resurrection to the gospel. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. But these are all the questions he went to this guy with. And the guy answered them. And so I tell you that to say this. You're not going to convert everybody you talk to. You might not convert anyone you talk to. But when somebody like Michael comes to you and has questions about the Bible, God, belief in God, belief in the resurrection, have an answer. Be ready with an answer. Read an apologetics book. Uh, read articles. Listen to William Lane Craig. Every day, a little podcast, a little, little daily dose of William Lane Craig. I mean, you'll go, whoa, I can't hang with this guy, but stay with it. Uh, stay with, listen, be ready. And, and as you're ready, God will send you people that you can prevail upon. So anyway, he, he tells him this. He comes out of light, turning from the dominion of Satan to God. And this is all why? So that they may receive forgiveness of sins. You know, I met some guy one time and he said, show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible. Very, very upset, very sarcastic where it says we're forgiven of our sins. And I said, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Are you led to believe that it's not there? I mean, come on. There it is. Why? So that you may see forgiveness of sins. All of this is to forgive our sins so that we can go before God holy and blameless. He's forgiven our sins. And an inheritance. We're not just forgiven of our sins. An inheritance among those who have been sanctified. That word means to be made holy. How are we made holy? By faith in Jesus. Doesn't say by being good and doing a bunch of good things. It's by faith in Jesus. That's what makes us holy. So he throws out the gospel there. Boom. Agrippa's didn't, Agrippa had no idea what was coming his way. No doubt. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Don't miss that. Paul believes in salvation by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But the preaching is about repenting. When you repent and turn to God, it means that you are walking away from God. You turned your mind, you changed your mind, and you walked the other way towards God. That's what repentance is. Changing your mind. Going that way, you change your mind and go that way. It's about repentance. Turning to God, not only saying it, but performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That's big. The Apostle Paul telling us this. I've been called a heretic for preaching something like this. And I'm going, eh, whatever. That's what it says. I'm just here telling you what it says. I didn't make it up. People say, nope, we're saved just by faith. Faith is it. And it is. But when you're saved through faith in Christ alone, you repent of your former life. Remember, you've gone from darkness to light. You've turned from darkness. If you're still living in darkness and you say you believe, you don't believe. You may believe something, but it's not saving faith. This is what we preach. This is what Paul preached, what God told us to preach. Verse 21, for this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tries to put me to death. For this reason, for what reason? Because of this simple gospel. They seized me in the temple, tried to put me, in, put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both small and... I want you to pause for a second. Let me just... 
Imagine Portius Festus, the governor of Judea, amidst the pomp that Agrippa's there. Portius Festus is listening. I, just, I picture him kind of sitting like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Listen, because here's what he's going to speak up in a second. So Paul says again in verse 22, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. As if to say, Jews, I'm not doing anything except preaching our scriptures. That the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection, where would you go the first passage of the prophets that says the Christ was to suffer? Your mind should immediately go to Isaiah 53. That's the greatest one there. Isaiah 52 and 53. In fact, it's all the servant songs of Isaiah chapter 42, chapters 42, all the way up to like 55. The Christ is going to suffer. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm just saying what the Old Testament says, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, Portius Festus, if he's sitting here like this, when he hears the resurrection, he goes something like this. No, no, no. He speaks up here. While Paul was saying this, in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. So he acknowledges Paul as a, as a learned man. And if you've done as much schooling as I have, I can, I can attest to the fact that you will go mad. Not only getting education, but trying to pursue more and more. Um, there is no end to the books that can be read. And my appetite for, for reading books over the years at one time was insatiable. Um, and my, only by virtue of being a very low energy person did I not read them all. And sadly, like many of you, I've probably forgotten most of what I've read. I'll go back in books I love and I'm going, I've been here before. I highlighted this, but I have no recollection of ever having read it. Worse, in the four books I've written and published... My apologetics book, which is my dissertation book, I've gone back and I thought, whoa, man, I sound smart there. And I have no recollection of ever having written. I know it's only going to get worse. So the reading of books, needing to read more books, people recommending books, it'll drive you mad for sure. Paul's not gone mad. And it's the resurrection that poked, that perked Festus up. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? A no good Roman believed in resurrection. And if they did, they would never admit it. Paul, you're crazy. Your learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. Nothing worse than being in the middle of a great sermon. Now the resurrection. Christ, thinking you have people in the palm of your hand. And some bonehead interrupting with some loud, out of nowhere, rude statement. Paul, you're out of your mind. Whatever person might have been hinging on his every word is now, wait a minute, oh yeah, he is crazy. No, most excellent Festus, I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. Now he's speaking to him as if he's not in the room. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. But this has not been done in a corner. In other words, everything he's talking about is not some secret thing, some secret event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has been all throughout Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth at this point. People are wondering, what happened? Many, no doubt, 30 years later, have forgotten most of it. And we're about 30 years beyond it at this point, about 25 years at least. For it has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
I want you to note that. By asking him if he believes the prophets. He's asking him. He's actually putting him in a corner. Backing him up against the wall. Because if Agrippa says he's a good Jew. Remember it's the Sadducees don't believe the prophets. Pharisees do. Paul says apparently he knows enough about him to say I know you believe the prophets. So if you believe the prophets Agrippa. Then you must believe in a resurrection. Mm, That's going to put Agrippa at odds with Sadducees. Who are there accusing Paul. Might not even be any Pharisees there. And now that's going to put his, his own, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, his, his own aura or his own reputation with the Jews or Romans at odds. If he says, yeah, I believe in the prophets. So Paul could easily just come back and say, but the prophets speak of a resurrection. And if you confirm a resurrection from the prophets, then you know I'm not crazy, nor am I guilty of anything here. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. <laughs> I wonder how he said that. Admit it. Now, I don't know how he said it. We don't know. We can't get from the text exactly what he's saying. But I think it, I think it highly embarrasses Agrippa here. Embar- he is embarrassed. He, doesn't, he hasn't expected to be, to be told to talk. And now he's backed him in a corner. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? Now, don't look at this. If you're an old King James person, you've got a King James version here. Uh, an entire hymn was written from a bad translation on this. Where it simply says, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian. That's the implication. That is not what he says. The Greek text always throws cold water on bad interpretations. The Greek text will always tell you what he's saying. What he's saying here is almost rebuking Paul. We don't know. Is You actually think that you're going to persuade me to be a Christian in this short time together? That, that, that's the gist of it. It could be, however. You really think you can convert me, Paul? You think in this short time, it's either anger and sarcasm or it's rhetorical. Doesn't matter what it was. Paul takes his words and uses them right back at him. I wish, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now the fact that he has chains on now means that Paul's situation has changed since he was first put in put under house arrest. We don't know why, but he's a Roman citizen. He's had no charges uh, that have been found, that he's been found guilty of. Uh, and so he was able to be ministered to by his friends. Now he's got chains on. He's been brought in. Imagine the scene. He comes before this huge Roman display of power with all the Jews in the audience. And he comes out having been in a jail cell for however long with chains on his, his legs and arms. I wish everyone would become like me. He probably holds them up as they clangle, except for these chains. I don't want anyone to have, have to deal with these like I am. But that's all Agrippa needed. King stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. Even Agrippa knows that. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He could have on, that, on the spot said, you're gone, go. There's nothing here. You can, you're free to go. What would have happened if he'd have done that? The Jews are waiting to kill him. Remember those hungry guys? They still hadn't eaten. They want him dead. No, it's good that they didn't make a decision. You appealed to Caesar. We're in Caesarea Maritime here on the, in Israel. We need to take you to Rome because that's where Caesar Nero is, and you'll go before him. 
Yes, they're obligated because he appealed his case to Caesar. Now, there is some question I've read for, for weeks, actually, in the past as well. Could Agrippa have set him free? They don't have any charges against him. Um, and it looks like Agrippa probably could have, but he doesn't. Uh, and we don't even know that, he's had, that he has anything else to add to the letter that's going to Nero that says, Here, here's why the guy's on trial. Nothing's added. Now, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So let's take a look at a few things. Hey, Lance. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. Right. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think it could be a statement or a question, and not and nothing changes. You can do it like, Mark. You really think? Okay, let's just say you're out there. You're you're a skeptic, and you're going to try to convince me the Bible's not not real. And it, my response to you might be, you really think you're going to cause me to believe the Bible isn't real? Now, is that really a question that I'm waiting for an answer from? My tone is telling you, why don't you just shut up? <laughs> or he could just say, you're not going to. You think, make me a Christian. You could put a question mark on it or an exclamation point. In fact, the Greek text, it's called the, uh, the indicative mood. Indicative mood encompasses both statements of fact and questions. So you can't tell from the Greek text there. I love Paul's response. Short time or long? Short time or long? I do wish that that would happen, right? Everybody here. There you go. I'm not here just to just to talk to you, Agrippa. Um, just a couple things on Paul being uh, what he was. He was highly regarded as an educated Pharisee, zealous for Judaism in his former life. He was hostile toward Christians and their leader, Jesus of Nazareth. Arrested and approved, and and approved of Christians being beaten and even killed. This is what you do in your testimony. This is what you, why your testimony is powerful. Here's what I once thought. I shared with you Michaels earlier. It's what I ask when you become Christians here or when you become members here. Tell me about your Christian testimony. Yet he was appointed a minister and a witness of Jesus of Nazareth. That should be on all of our testimonies. I didn't believe and then I did. God pulled me out, yanked me around, cleaned me up, dressed me, and said, here's who you are now. Like it or not. Appointed sent to preach Jews, to Jews and Gentiles the faith he once sought to destroy. And what was he doing? He was sent to grant forgiveness of sins through the preaching of the gospel, rescuing people from Satan through faith in Jesus Christ. It, it all comes together there. When we rescue, when we share the gospel and God saves them, we are rescuing. God is using us, I should say, to rescue people out of darkness into light, away from Satan. So don't forget that. I've told you that before on Sunday mornings, is that when we're sharing the gospel, if you're talking to an unbeliever, you're talking to one of Satan's own. He owns them. They're his. If you don't think you're going to get some kickback, you're ignorant. Know that you're talking to someone whom the demons have. They're trying to keep. By God's grace, he might work through your words and that person might come to the light. And it might be simple and, and you pray and they're that and it's all great. You don't see any demonic garbage going on out there. But no, it's happening. Because it's Satan that they belong to. Bringing them out from the power of Satan under the lordship of Christ. So, is it insane to believe in a resurrection? People today think it is. I mean, you and I, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you don't even think about it. I believe Jesus raised from the dead. Yeah, sure. We talk about it. Every Easter we talk about it. 
Every song we sing, we think about it, we love it. Sure, yeah, great. We take the Lord's Supper, we remember it. But most people think we're crazy. Charles Cochran points out in Christianity and Classical Culture that the typical Roman worshipped the imperial fortune, or worshipped imperial fortune, which is the prominence and success of the empire. That's what Festus would have worshipped. Festus, being a politician and worshipper of power, would never accept the resurrection of a dead man. Even if he did, he'd kept it secret for fear of interfering with his politics. And that's some of the reason that people will not believe today. They don't want to believe the resurrection. There's some wonderful books written out there on the resurrection that prove it. Apologetics book, books. Gary Habermas has, has dedicated his entire life to showing that the resurrection is real, the historicity of it. I mean, he's written books this thick and gone back and he said he totally redid it. He said, I completely reset everything in another book that thick. In fact, it's going to be volume one and volume two. All of that to show the resurrection is believable. Um, it's there. You know, it's not that people can't believe. It's that people don't want to believe. They won't believe. As it was with Festus. The world has always viewed Christians as crazy. Our devotion to Christ appears to many as insanity. Which I find ironic today. But that which others thought well of, Paul called scubalon. Which is the only real place you can use a foul word in church if you say it in Greek. Scubalon. Remember that word. Scubalon. Here it is in Paul's words. Philippians 3, 2-11. He says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, circumcised in the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all but rubbish, which is a really nice way of saying dog poo. That's what he counts them all. And it's, it, he's saying it is the lowest of the low. <laughs> all of the things that he once was. That's how low he thinks those are now. They're scubalon, rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is insanity to people, that you would count everything you once thought great as rubbish. It means nothing to me. I give it all up to gain that which I cannot see. To gain that I might attain from the resurrection of the dead. That I might know Christ. Yes, people think we're crazy. Who's really insane? Folks give up millions today to become pastors and missionaries. And I say that, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't one of them. Maybe I could have gotten another job and made millions. I doubt that too. But I'm talking about um, wealthy people from the past that gave up all their money to serve Christ. Um, to give up their entire lifestyle to sail to a foreign country and speak to people that have never heard about Jesus. They give up millions to become pastors and missionaries. Dying early deaths at the hands of savages. Great athletes who gave up their, give up their prime years to serve Christ instead. Are they insane? That's why I put question marks here. I always think of Eric Little from uh, Chariots of Fire. Have you guys seen that yet? I told you to watch it. I think it was a, a different name for the I looked it up. Chariots of Fire? No. The Eric, I looked up Eric Little. Yeah. But it was a different movie than the... the okay. Movie. Well, Chariots of Fire. That's one you need to watch. Chariots of Fire. 
Hey. You young guys watch a bunch of junk movies. I want you to watch this movie. I mean, how many movies can I actually recommend and not get in trouble? That's one. Wasn't it the best picture one year? Best picture, best music. Yep. That's a true story. No one gets blown up. (laughs) There's no sexual escapades in it, but what a great movie. In the former Soviet Union, belief in God was considered, quote, a delusion. Christians were given drugs for psychosis, yet it wasn't the patients who were insane. Today, PhDs won't even define what a woman is. They teach perversions to our children. And they try to convince us that the earth will be gone in 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. 10 years. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the silliness. And they call us insane? They're worshiping their climate change. Whatever denial they're worshiping. It's a bunch of worship. It's a bunch of garbage, isn't it? Insanity. True sanity lies with the Pauls of this world. Those who build their lives on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. People think we're crazy, let them. I mean, we're not the first. It's crazy to live as most do, as though ultimate reality resides only in materialism, which is that what can be seen and touched. That's what people live for. That's what materialism is. You've heard of materialism. It's that belief that the only thing we believe is that which we can see, touch, feel, see. That which is sensory uh, can be gained by empirical research. See, taste, hear, smell, whatever it might be. When in reality... Um, can love be seen or tasted? Touched, heard? What about laughter? What about uh, any emotions? How about mathematics? Laws of physics? These are not materialistic. And this is what atheists say. So it's crazy to live as they do as if those things are not immaterial. And yet they do. And they teach our kids to believe that as well. And they write books. And they say things like, there is no truth. That's what, uh, that's what our philosophers say. Friedrich Nietzsche. There is no truth. There is no truth. Is that true? Well, I wouldn't believe him at all because it's self-defeating. If that's a true statement, then it can't be true. It defeats itself the moment you open your mind. And that's what he taught. And yet he wrote voluminously. Why write anything if there's no truth? Daniel, I, I taught Daniel my philosophy growing up, my son. And he was talking about that at, one, at the church where he goes down. Some guy took exception. Nietzsche didn't say that. Daniel calls, did Nietzsche say that? I said, yes. So here, look it up. It's the first thing you'll find on any overview of his life. Here it is. I mean, I researched it and I had to read some of his idiocy just to get my, my own research. But yes, there's no truth. What a stupid thing to say. And they call us insane. Connie, do you have a question? Well, I just heard a quote that said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's Jim Elliott. It said anonymous. I didn't know. No, it's Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott absolutely said that. um, What, Jim was what, 24, 25 when he died? At the hands of uh, uh, the Indians down in South America? Okay. All right. Thank you. Good quote. Good one to remember. Yet, Paul says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For that which is seen is temporary, but what is seen is eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. The world says, no, you have to see it. Paul says, we fix our eyes on that which cannot be seen. 
It's insane to think, as many do, that contentment will be found in possessions or wealth. Jesus said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's insane to think that contentment results from status or achievement. Agrippa and Bernie said prestige. All the pomp of their life, the political good life. Nero was the king of the known world. But it is the Pauls of this world who are sane and who live in contentment now and will glory later. Will glory later. Almost persuaded. How many of you grew up Baptist, Methodist, and you, and you knew this old hymn? Is this hymn? Yeah, there you go. Almost persuaded. Sadly, it's based on a really bad interpretation. It's by Philip Bliss, lived up to 1876. He based the hymn on the King James Version text of Acts 26, 28, which says, Almost thou persuadeth me to be a Christian, as if it's a statement, as if Agrippa said, I'm real close, Paul. Almost persuaded now to believe. It's always sung at you know an altar call, invitational time. Almost persuaded now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go, spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee, I'll call. Um, but the Greek text kills his hymn, unfortunately. Yes, many come to the point of that, that that song describes, but Agrippa was not one of them. Um, don't think that he was. He's not saying, I'm real close. It was more of an embarrassment, sarcastic comment to him. And the Greek text says it's just really, it's not a good interpretation, but it's not radical either uh, in any no way i mean you can't go home and say i'm not reading that king james anymore king james version of the bible is still the bible uh, paul today many professed christians wouldn't dare come to paul's church if he were the pastor do you think they'd be too uncomfortable in his presence he's too harsh too extreme too one-sided it's not attractive enough. he's not attractive enough that's why you come here right But think about it. If Paul was a pastor of a local church, this guy would scare us. He would. I mean, it would scare us. It would make us feel, wow, I'm not doing enough. I'm not like him. No doubt Paul would receive many emails from angry folks at his preaching, especially the women who thinks that he hates them. You know, because Paul would dare to say things like, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over me. You think Beth Moore would come to his church? Wouldn't God like to see more of this so-called insanity? I think so. If we are out of our mind, Paul says, it is for the sake of God, 2 Corinthians 5.13. If we are out of our mind, let's assume we are. We're out of our mind for the sake of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of us believe everything Paul believed, but we have not carried our faith to its logical end as Paul did. I'm just speaking of myself. I, I have no right to say that about any of you. I don't. But we do believe everything Paul believed. I hope we do. But have we? Maybe if we're given the opportunity to suffer as he suffered, would we? Have you asked God that? Would I? Could I do that? I have. Lord, am I going to? I'm young enough to face who knows what's coming in this world, in this country. Who knows? Am I going to be the guy on the news there dragging out, throwing into a police car, putting in jail? Might that happen to me? I don't know. If I am, am I going to be... I'm a griper by nature. Ask my wife. I like to find anything I can. I've been very convicted by that lately. Because some of you would never gripe. And I've met a few of you and you go, you never gripe. I don't like people that don't gripe. (laughs) Makes me feel bad. 
Though we as Christians, mere specks, may stand in front of people with great pomp. The majestic people of this world, eternal life flows from us. Eternal death from them. What might Paul tell us tonight? He would say this, stay the course. Even if others think you're crazy, keep on serving Christ. Never, ever give up. Like Paul, Christ has sent us too to open the eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a calling it is. So let us pray. We pray these. No, I don't bow yet. This is for you to pray. And I will close with these. That God cause us not to worry about what people think about us. Whether they love and respect us or they think they're crazy. It really, I've been told for years is that you will be determined as a man, as a pastor, as a man of God. Not based on how people criticize you, but on how they compliment you. Don't ever believe your presence. Some of you are just so grounded. You say things like, now look, I don't, I don't want to give you a bigger head than you already have. But, but that was a good sermon. Thank you. <laughs> no one's ever said to give you a bigger head than you already have. Um, because that would be pretty bold. But I do not have. I, I know, and let me just say it. I didn't expect to say this, but there's a certain look that many of, the only look you know that I have is me behind a pulpit. Speaking assertively, with confidence, authority, saying things that you should do and believe. I look and sound arrogant. The tone of my voice is very matter of fact. This I believe in, this is the hill I'll die on. That is not who I am when I talk to Cheryl. I don't get home and say, Cheryl, here's what you're going to do. Yes, it is a good thing. I'm actually not, even, even on my staff, I mean, Tammy Boriak used to work here, and she said, you're such a marshmallow when it comes to, and I said, what? No one's ever called me a marshmallow before. There are certain decisions I don't want to make. I don't want to do. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to say something the wrong way, the right way, at the wrong time. I, I, I am not this way when I leave here. I absolutely believe this and put a lot of time into what I teach. So by the time I'm teaching, I'm ready. I'm not... Dancing around anything, as you know. But that's not how I am. So, I mean, I I don't get a big head. I don't stand up here and I never go home and say, wow, I nailed that one. I've never said that. I never would say it. In fact, I go home quite depressed. I find, I've found that without knowing it, when I get in the car, I usually turn the radio on. And so that I don't have to think about what I just said. Isn't that sad? I don't want to think, oh my, what did I say? I don't want to get home to my wife and her go, "Mm." (laughs) hmm. And she's done that many times. I've hurt my daughter's feelings before, talking about her. I've hurt my son's feelings. I've hurt other people in the church's feelings before. I've been misunderstood. I've been fully understood. And I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think. It is a terrible, horrible job to go and leave and go, oh, I miss that. I miss that. I never go away thinking, wow, darn, I'm good. Never have. God willing, never will. So we pray that God will not cause us to worry about what people think of us, whether they love us or hate us. Number two, we pray that God remind us of who we are in Christ. And this is all we'll ever be concerned about. Because what everybody thinks, it doesn't matter. I'm a servant of God. What you think of me doesn't matter. 
Why do we care otherwise? I mean, I'll be honest, I do. I want everybody to love me. That's the way it should be, right? We worry about those things. But we pray that God will remind us who we are in Christ is all we matter, all that matters. And we pray that God will give us the courage to speak the gospel to the truly insane of our present darkness. That God give us success in our evangelism, even if he doesn't. That we will trust in him all the same. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, I do pray for all of us that we would not be concerned, worry about what people say, whether they love us or hate us. But that we be concerned that we get the gospel correct. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of who we are in Christ. That's all that's ever mattered. That we take solace in knowing that we are yours and you are ours. That you would give us the courage to speak the gospel to the truly insane of this present darkness. And even if they don't listen to us, Lord, whether they do or don't, may that not change our faith. But you would just make us stronger through every situation. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 